As you know, we have been in a series called The Master's 12 for several weeks now, and uh, I have uh, learned so much personally studying through the lives of the 12 disciples. And the 12 do seem familiar to us because they are just like us. Um, they're like other people we know. Uh, they're quite real, they're quite raw, and that's why we can identify with them. Jesus called them here in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13. When it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. And here they are, these names that are, some of them are quite legendary to us. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Not one name on the list is an accomplished scholar or an exceptional orator or a distinguished theologian. In fact, all of these men are basically outsiders as far as the political and religious world of Jesus' day was concerned. And the point of this entire series, and I think you've got it by now, but we're going to bear down a couple more lessons they were far from outstanding. They were ordinary. They were prone to mistakes and misunderstandings. These men were susceptible to bad days and very bad attitudes. They all too often showed poor judgment and sometimes pathetic self-centeredness. And yet as ordinary as they were, these 12 men left an indelible impact on the world and they still continue to influence us some 2,000 years later. So the message is clear. If God could use them to turn their world upside down, my goodness, God wants to use you and me to do something for his kingdom in the world in which we live. Uh, by way of review, there are four listings of the disciples, and they're given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then in the book of Acts. And then there are occasional mentions of their names in the Gospel of John. And it appears that these uh, listings are organized into three groups with four disciples each, probably based on their level of intimacy with Jesus, uh, the amount of time they'd walked with him. And uh, group one always has Peter at the head of the list. It always also includes Andrew, James, and John. Group two always has Philip at the head of the list and includes Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, his surname. Also includes Thomas and Matthew, that's group two. And then group three always has James, the son of Alphaeus, at the head of the list. And it includes Judas, Labaius, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. And so all of these men, while some of them are well known to us, some of them are hardly known to us, all 12 were just like us. They were unworthy, they were unqualified, but God delights in using nobodies, so there is never a question about whose power is doing the work or who should receive the glory. I am thankful to belong to a kingdom where we don't have to exalt some man who has all the same issues and struggles and problems as us, but we have a Savior. He is perfect in his majesty. He is beautiful in his power. He is exceptional in his glory, and he will never let you down. And so he always does the work, and he always gets the glory. And he chooses ordinary saints like you and me 
because that's the only kind of saints there are and have ever been in his kingdom. Paul would later write, it's been one of our theme scriptures, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. So if you've ever felt foolish or weak or base or despised or like nothing, uh, that's probably because that's the kind of people God looks for to redeem. And when he redeems them, his kingdom is blessed and he receives all the glory. It's an amazing thing, this kingdom of God. Now we've already studied the lives of the disciples in that first group of four. Peter and Andrew and James and John. Two pairs of brothers, all fishermen, all co-workers, and basically all neighbors in the tiny town of Capernaum. Even though James and John came from a wealthy family, while Peter and Andrew definitely did not, they had probably still all been friends since childhood because that village was not very big. None of these men were rabbis or religious leaders. None of them were especially distinguished or gifted. And to make matters worse, in the eyes of society, they were all Galileans. They all came from a rural area. Galilee was often distinguished as being called low class or uneducated by everybody else. And furthermore, among those four, as we studied, we noticed that they're each as different as night and day. Uh, Peter is quite outspoken, to say the least. In fact, you may remember that Peter and John, uh, they're together often in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Peter talks all the time. John never says a word. Uh, you probably have friends on one side of that spectrum or the other. And the reason that you were uh, friends, why you became friends in the first place, maybe why you married them, is because of that old saying that says, opposites attract. And then later, opposites attack. And, and that's what happens. And that's what happened with the disciples. And those four, because they were so different, those four who were very prominent were responsible. You read the Gospels. They were responsible for so much of the ongoing tension that we read about among the twelve. Uh, you could make the case that they were more prominent only because their egos often created more problems. And yet God in his mercy and grace still used them to change the world. And we've also studied the lives of the disciples in that second group of four. Uh, Philip and his friend Nathaniel, Thomas the doubter, and Matthew the tax collector. And it appears that three of them were fishermen as well. That would make seven fishermen among the disciples. Um, Matthew was the exception. He was considered an outsider because of his occupation as a tax collector, a publican. Philip appears to have been the leader of that second group of four, and perhaps even the administrator for the twelve. Now Nathaniel, he seems to have struggled with prejudice, at least against Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of there? And Thomas has his own problems. 
Um, but it's obvious from the Gospels that while we call him Thomas the Doubter, he was far from the only one of the disciples to have doubts. But they were also all from that rural Galilee region. Other than Philip and Nathaniel, it doesn't seem that this second four knew each other very well before their time as Jesus' disciples. They're not nearly as cohesive a group of four, and they're not nearly as prominent in Scripture as that first group of four. And then the disciples in the third group of four, some of them are our subject tonight, and they are the least known to us by far, except for one, Judas Iscariot. The other three in that final group of four disciples, they remain virtually silent in the gospel accounts. So we know very, very little about them. Like all the others, they had courageously left everything behind to follow Jesus. And yet these men, the first three of this four, they never moved to the foreground of the story. In fact, when any of the disciples do happen to come to the foreground of the narrative, they're usually not great examples of what disciples should be. Just about every time you see some of these men talking, they're often fearful and doubtful, or they think more highly of themselves than they ought. They speak when they should be quiet, and they often seem clueless as to what Jesus is actually teaching and doing. You can read the whole 12 disciples and study each one of them, and their weaknesses show up in the narrative far more often than their strengths. So if you've ever had a week when you thought that about yourself, that my weaknesses are more prominent than my strengths, you're probably in pretty good company because that would have been the case for the 12. Now Mark and Luke, they were not among the 12. They wrote gospels, but they were not among the 12 disciples. Mark and Luke were later companions of Peter and Paul. We think Mark got much of his narrative and his information from Peter and Luke from the apostle Paul whom he traveled with. But Mark and Luke, even though they weren't part of the 12, they were brutally honest in their accounts. They called these men out for all these things that they did that probably weren't very good. But Matthew and John were part of the 12. Matthew and John wrote Gospels. They were part of the 12. They were part of the story. And so every time Matthew and John write about their shortcomings, they're implicating themselves. They're saying, I was part of this group that argued about who was going to be greatest and this group that doubted and this group that was fearful and they're implicating themselves in their narratives. Every one of the Gospels, I'm so thankful for the Word of God, every one of the Gospels is refreshing in its raw honesty. There's no candy coating the subject matter. There's no putting these people on pedestals and whitewashing all of their flaws and pretending they're something they're not. The Gospels are refreshing because they're honest. And once again, every one of the four Gospels proves that God wants to use ordinary people to accomplish His great will. And this is not only true when you're prominent like Peter or when you're a writer like John or whether you're a leader in the first few chapters of Acts like James. It's not just for those people. It is equally true that God wants to use ordinary people even when those people are not prominent, when they're not very well known, 
when they're not in the forefront of the action or the story. God wants to use people who are quite unknown in this world. They are quite hidden in the background. People like James the Less and Judas Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. God wants to use people like them too. Basically all the Gospels tell us about James the Less is his name. That's pretty much it. He's called James the son of Alphaeus in all four listings of the twelve. But he's also referred to as James the Less one time in the Gospels. That happens in Mark 15 and 40 as Mark records the names of three women standing at the cross and one of them is, one of them is James' mother. But other than his name, we know very little about James the Less who's often confused with that other disciple called James the Greater. How would you like to sit in the same pew as those people? On this side, James the Greater. On this side, James the Less. Who are you going to sit beside? He's often confused with that other disciple that history calls James the Greater. He's also often confused with James the Just, who's the half-brother of Jesus and who later writes the book of James. But all we know about this James, James the Less, is that his father was named Alphaeus and his mother was named Mary. That's basically it. His lack of prominence is even reflected in his name, his nickname, Mikros, which can mean small, little, young, minor, but probably the historians got it right. It probably just means less. After all, the other disciple who's named James, he came from a wealthy and influential family, the family of Zebedee. Their family was even known to the high priest. Their family even had servants to help them run their fishing business. They were very well known. They were very wealthy. They were very influential. So this guy is definitely not that. He's James the less. Little James. Unknown James. Behind the scene, James. James the less. And the nickname stuck among the early Christians. So in reality, this man's only distinguishing mark in the Gospels is his total obscurity. We know almost nothing about him. And that fast-forwards me to the 20th century. That fast-forwards me to where we are today in the 21st century and I look at all the great men and women who have come and gone in the apostolic movement in my lifetime some of them very well known to many of us we could call their names they were great preachers they were great leaders they were great evangelists they were great missionaries but for every one of those that you can call their name like Simon Peter for every one of those in our century there are thousands of people that you can't call their name. But heaven knows their name. They are prayer warriors behind the scenes. They pray for their pastor or they pray for that missionary or they pray for that evangelist who is far more prominent and maybe thousands of people know the name of that missionary. Maybe thousands of people know the name of that evangelist but what this church will never see on this side of the rapture is those unnamed disciples, those unnamed saints who are on their knees praying the Pentecostal fire down on that evangelist and praying Holy Ghost anointing down on that great leader and all we know is the prominent ones 
But the kingdom of heaven is not built on the prominent ones. Your nose is prominent. Your heart is far more important. And there are people in the kingdom of God who are very prominent and thank God for their anointed ministries. But if nobody ever calls your name in the kingdom of God outside the walls of this local church, if you serve Jesus faithfully and if you make heaven your home, you're going to find out when you get there that heaven knew exactly who you were and heaven knew exactly how faithful you were and heaven knew that it was you holding the fire under your pastor because you were praying, anointing on him every week. Heaven is a whole lot different than here. All we know about James is his name. He's distinguished only by the fact we know nothing about him. Which brings me to a question. If you got people that aren't prominent at all and they don't even figure in the narrative at all, why did Jesus choose 12 disciples in the first place? Why not 10 or 20 or 6? It appears that the master's making a strong statement in having his 12 disciples resemble the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes led by Moses, and the 12 territories carved out by Joshua. 12 is the number of government in the scripture. And so having 12 disciples is an intentional statement, I am instituting a new covenant. And that's the best reason theologically that we can come up with for the 12 being chosen. After all, some of these men seem quite unnecessary to the story, like James the Less. They don't really do or say anything consequential. They receive no recognition. They demonstrate no particular leadership qualities. They are minor characters in the Gospels and they totally disappear in the book of Acts and in the epistles. In James' case, only his name remains. His life and all of his labors are totally lost to history. But, brothers and sisters, he was still one of the twelve. Jesus chose James the less for a reason. He trained and empowered him and sent him out just like all the rest. So James the less, you might not know anything about him, but heaven knows everything about him. He's a hero for that reason alone, just like all the other unnamed saints that have filled the halls of history throughout all of the centuries. It's very similar to what we call the hall of faith. Uh, Brother Herod preached some from this on the weekend. Hebrews 11. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who? We don't know. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. What are their names? We don't know. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured. They did not accept deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Who are these unnamed saints and heroes? We have no idea. Others had 
trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Who is it that goes through all of this persecution, all of this trauma and trial for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the Lord Jesus? We don't have any idea, but I assure you heaven keeps very good records. Heaven knows exactly who they were. Heaven knows their name. Heaven knows every time they prayed. Heaven knows every act of faithfulness when they were threatened with death and they stood strong for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says, of whom this world was not worthy. They were better than this world. They were better than their persecutors. They were better than their tormentors. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They're quite a motley crew. The world doesn't give them any credit. The world would discard them as the off-scouring of history. Their lives don't matter, but you see their lives do matter in a kingdom like this where to be great you become the least and where to become a master you serve in a backward kingdom to, according to this world. These saints matter very, very much. I need to tell you tonight, it's been uh, weighing on me this week, this uh, message, this lesson, because eternity will be the great equalizer. The judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be momentous. The judgment seat of Christ is going to reveal the names and the lives and the testimonies of people just like James the Less. Those the world barely remembers and knows nothing about. Those the church hardly recognizes and sometimes forgets to honor. Those who labor faithfully in the harvest field without ever knowing what they are accomplishing. What does it matter that I came to prayer meeting faithfully Every Friday night this year, it matters a lot in heaven and it matters a lot to the success of your church and it matters so much to the impact of the kingdom of God in our city. But so many people in the kingdom, they labor faithfully and the world has created such a celebrity-oriented culture, especially with social media. If you don't have a bunch of followers clamoring to find out the newest thing you said or the crazy new thing you did, if you don't have any of that, then you're insignificant in our world. And we need to beware, Pentecostal church, lest we create a duplicate kind of culture in our midst where the only people that matter are the people that stand on platforms behind pulpits and preach conferences. We need to be very careful. We don't create a culture where the only people that are valued in a local church are the people that pastor happens to call their name from the pulpit some night. Those aren't the people that are only valued in the kingdom of heaven. Everybody is valued in the kingdom of heaven. God has a lot invested in this kingdom and he invests prayer warriors and he calls intercessors and intercessors may never preach a sermon 
But my goodness, there have been so many sermons that had an impact in this pulpit, an impact around these altars because before the preacher ever opened up his Bible, an intercessor opened up the heavens over this place because they were interceding. God, anoint pastor tonight. God, touch our church tonight. God, let your word be clear and plain. And God, fill our altars. And God, stir the waters of the baptistry. And God, pour out your spirit. And God, do miracles, signs, and wonders. And nobody ever knew their name. But an intercessor prayed the price for what was done in church. And some of you are among that number. And I just need to take tonight and honor you because God honors you. Sometimes people, they labor and they pray and they're faithful and they give and they sacrifice. And then they watch others get the credit for things they have done. Sometimes there are saints of God who pray in the shadows for others who happen to shine in the spotlight. Would you forget about the spotlight? The spotlight is a construct of this world's mentality. Heaven has a different spotlight. Heaven's spotlight penetrates into the innermost places of the heart. Heaven's spotlight sees where nobody else on this planet sees. There are people whose ministries are hidden from the mainstream and hidden from the masses, all because the Lord is using their lives to produce some choice fruit for his coming glory that can be brought forth only in the shade. And they're faithful in executing their ministry in the sight of God. They are unknown on earth, so many thousands of them. But they are revered in heaven and they are feared in hell. They are those who serve God joyfully in obscurity, unrecognized and unrewarded so many times on this earth, down here, right now, just like James the Less. If that's you, and you've sometimes felt quite insignificant, quite invisible, quite unnecessary, I just want to tell you that Jesus chose 12. And most of us can only tell you much about four or five of them. And we lose track of the rest of them. But Jesus never lost track of them. And heaven never lost track of them. And he called 12 because he wanted 12. Would you lift up your hand in the presence of God and just, just worship him for a moment? There's a beautiful touch of the Holy Ghost in this room tonight. You see, before Pastor Raymond ever got to this pulpit to teach you tonight, there was a prayer warrior that you don't know their name and you don't know when they prayed, but they prayed over this Bible study service. And what we feel here, it may be partly because of the lesson, but let me assure you, it's not nearly all because of the lesson. Somebody prayed over this preacher and over this service and over this church. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I'm so grateful for him, and I'm so grateful for you, the faithful, faithful saints of God. It has been my lot and my privilege uh, over the last several years to travel 
some overseas into some of our mission fields and to speak in buildings that were very plain and sometimes almost embarrassingly so, uh, to speak with PA systems that were quite elementary and sometimes were more of a problem than they were worth, um, to speak in buildings where the power kept going out, to speak in buildings where animals wandered in and out. I spoke in one building, and uh, it was very dark. It was in uh, the continent of Africa. We have such wonderful believers and powerful churches in Africa. And uh, we were way out in the bush for this particular trip, and and it was a, a little uh, church building, and um, and the walls went about halfway up, and then there was, a, I, I think, a thatched roof over top of it, some, something like that. And I was preaching, and it was dark. It was night. And so to help me see my notes and to help the people see me, somebody decided it would be a wonderful thing to hold a lantern uh, right next to my head throughout the preaching. Can I tell you what happens in the dark, at least in Africa or in New Brunswick in the summer? If it's dark and you hold a lantern right behind somebody's, right beside somebody's head while they're trying to talk with their mouth wide open, I claim that scripture. If you eat any deadly thing, it will not hurt you. Do you know the anointing of God was in that room? Do you know that people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in that little primitive church? Do you know that Jesus performs miracles for those people? Because although the world doesn't think them worthy of anything, Jesus is only concerned about one thing, and that is that they are his people. They are his disciples. It's wonderful. Um, let's move on. Now, this man is certainly not as well known as that other disciple who shared his name. And that's a very good thing when your name is Judas. This man is called Judas, the brother of James, in both of Luke's accounts, Luke and Acts. But we're not exactly sure who his brother was. It wasn't either of the two James that are among the disciples, uh, nor was it Jesus' brother. But otherwise, we have no additional information. He's called Thaddeus in Mark's gospel, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, in Matthew's gospel. And most pointedly, he is referred to as Judas, not Iscariot, in John's writing. One of the early church fathers referred to him as uh, Trinomius, which means the man with three names, uh, because it was Judas, Labaius, Thaddeus. Now, Judas is a form of Judah, and it means praise, and that would have been the Hebrew name given to him as birth. His other names are essentially some kind of nicknames. The best we can determine, Labaius means heart child, and Thaddeus means breast child. Today, we would probably say mama's boy. And there's probably no telling how much teasing Judas Thaddeus, Judas mama's boy, endured from the rest of the disciples. No doubt his parents intended those nicknames to suggest that he had a tender, childlike heart. And it was Jesus himself who said that such a heart was a necessity for entering his kingdom. But tenderness is all too often considered a weakness in our world. When in reality, brothers and sisters, tenderness is a great strength. Jesus said this, 
Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Your tender heart toward God is one of your greatest assets. The world would like to harden your heart. It would like to turn you into a skeptic and a cynic and a critic of all things good and spiritual and pure. Don't let the world win. Keep your tender heart toward God. Now like James the Less, Judas Labaius Thaddeus is a minor character in the Gospels and then he disappears entirely in the book of Acts and the epistles and only his name remains. Everything he did, everything he said, all of his work is totally lost to history. But John does record one heartfelt question that was asked by Judas Thaddeus directly to Jesus. It was asked as the disciples were gathered together for the Last Supper. It's that final night before the crucifixion. And John spends five full chapters in his gospel recounting this one conversation because this is the last time the Master will speak to them before he dies. And here we have it in John 14. Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. And here it is. The only time the man speaks in all of the scriptural records. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, the other Judas, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. This is the only time that he speaks up in the Gospels. But this perfectly illustrates the pure, childlike heart of Judas Labaius Thaddeus. Jesus says to them, I will manifest myself to those that love me. And let me tell you who those are that love me. Those that love me are those who will keep my commandments. Now you know the disciples. We've already studied about them and how they kind of jumped in sometimes. You know that when Jesus said, those that love me are those that keep my commandments, some of those disciples no doubt thought, well, that's good because um, we are those commandment keepers. We're the good guys. We're the disciples. We walk with the master. We're, we're in good with God. We've got the inside track with Jesus. We're the favored ones. We keep his commandments. And Jesus just told us that he loves those that keep his commandments. But that's not the response of Judas Thaddeus. He immediately asks, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How is this going to work, Jesus? And why would you do it this way, Jesus? Who are we to be so blessed that you would manifest your love and your grace and your mercy to us and not to the world? He is in awe of the mercy and the grace of God. Because he walked with Jesus and the rest of the twelve. He knows the flaws of his brethren among the disciples all too well. He knows his own flaws all too well. He's totally aware of his own shortcomings. And probably it entered into the mind of Judas Thaddeus in that moment when Jesus said, 
I'm going to manifest myself to those that love my commandments, and that's you guys. Immediately in his mind, he thought, wait a minute. There are people in this world who are much more qualified, much more valuable, much more talented, much more capable. Jesus, there are people out there that they're just better people than we are. So, so in, in, in contrast to all the rest who remain silent, he basically says, who are we to deserve this, Jesus? And Jesus looks back at him and says, you know, Judas Thaddeus, it's all about my word. It's not about how gifted you are. It's about how obedient you are to my word. If you keep my word, I will make my dwelling place in you. And so it won't be your power. It'll be my power. And it won't be your goodness. It'll be my goodness. It won't be your ability. It'll be my ability. That's how it will work. That's why it will work. I'm going to manifest myself to you because the world isn't listening to my message. And then after my ascension, when I empower you with the Holy Ghost, I'm going to send you to the world to tell them about all of this. And I'm going to manifest myself to you because you love my word and you keep my word. So you may not have all the skill, Judas Thaddeus, you may not have all the credentials and all the pedigree, but you've got the right heart. It's a heart that appreciates the greatness and the goodness of the gospel enough to share it. And can I tell you, Jesus still blesses people exactly like that who aren't thinking they're some big shot because they've got the class pin or they got their picture in the yearbook of the Pentecostal Sunday school for the last 80 years. That's not who God's kingdom values. God's kingdom values people who are humble before God. And every day that they live, they think, who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that I should be part of his church? Who am I that I should have the blessings of God? Jesus, how is it that you'd manifest yourself to us and you're not manifesting yourself in the same way to all the world? And Jesus would tell us two things. I'm manifesting myself to you because you love my word enough to obey it. And secondly, I'm manifesting myself to you because I want to send you to the world that doesn't know me yet. And if you will love them like you love my word, and then if you can connect them with my word that you are connected to, I can do amazing things in their life. Jesus still blesses people with a heart like Judas Thaddeus and we don't know anything about him other than that one comment. And then in closing tonight, there are nine people, nine of them, in the New Testament named Simon. Including that other disciple. The loud, boisterous, foot-in-mouth, popular leader one named Simon Peter. There are nine Simons in the New Testament. But only one of the nine is identified as Simon the Zealot. Matthew and Mark call him Simon the Canaanite, but that's not in reference to the village of Cana, nor is it in reference to the land of Canaan. It comes from an Aramaic word, kana, which means to be zealous. So Luke is precisely correct in both of his accounts, in the book, in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, when he calls him Simon Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot, 
Simon Kana, Simon full of zeal. Now, he's not a prominent character in the New Testament. The four listings of the twelve are the only time that Simon the Zealot is ever mentioned. So he's not prominent. But his background is very unique among the disciples. Because before this man followed Jesus, he had belonged to a radical extremist sect known as the Zealots. The Zealots were revolutionaries. They used violence. They used terrorism. They used assassination to further their political agenda. And they believed in the Messiah, but they were looking for a conqueror to come and overthrow the Roman Empire by force. That was the zealots. That was this man named Simon. His background was one of anger and hatred and malice. This man had probably killed others in the service of his ideology. This man thought nothing of attacking or protesting or marching or warring. And he had no respect for anybody that got in his way. Can you imagine how Simon the Zealot felt when he first heard Jesus addressing the crowds during the Sermon on the Mount? he discovered all too abruptly that the master's loving theology was in direct opposition to the zealot's hateful ideology. Here's what Jesus said. Simon would have been there to hear it. You have heard that it has been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, no, it doesn't work like that in my kingdom. Love your enemies Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now that is an inside out, upside down kingdom. And can I tell you, I know we've all been dyed in the wool Pentecostal for a while now, but Jesus' kingdom still works exactly the same way. You never get mature enough in the church to start hating on people that aren't like you. You never get enough of a Pentecostal pedigree that you can ever afford to look down your nose on people that don't get your lifestyle and don't get morality and don't get godliness and don't get holiness. You never get mature enough or enough seniority to start judging everybody else. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. If you've got an enemy, you need to love them. If you've got somebody cursing you, you need to bless them. If you've got somebody that's using you horribly, despitefully, terribly, you need to get down on your knees and call their name in prayer. And you will do far much more good for the kingdom of God and far much more good for the world around you and far more good for yourself by doing that than anything else you can do. But can you imagine how Simon felt? He'd killed people for his ideology. He was basically a terrorist against the Roman Empire along with his little group of zealots. They thought nothing. Some of them were called the Sicarii. They had these curved knives and they would sneak up behind maybe a Roman official and plunge that knife into their back. They were experts at putting it between the ribs and twisting it and killing them on the spot. And he'd probably done that. In our world today, we're all just overwrought with 
concern and even anxiety about what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, what's going on between China and so many other countries that it has designs on. And we're all overwrought. We don't have any room to be overwrought and anxious because the Prince of Peace rules our lives. This world doesn't regard him, but we do. And he said, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. You don't need to be having apostolic anxiety and Pentecostal panic attacks. Jesus is still on the throne and the world is still his footstool and he still reigns supreme in the kingdoms of men. And if God could save Simon the Zealot, Simon the assassin, Simon the terrorist, Simon the hater, then God can reach into any terrorist regime. You hear me tonight. He can reach into any terrorist regime on this planet and he can turn around the hearts of some of their key leaders or some of their key soldiers and he can do something in a few minutes, a few days that you can't even comprehend. He did it before. Simon the zealot was the test case. Can you imagine how Simon the Zealot felt when he discovered that his fellow disciple Matthew was a tax collector, a publican who worked for the hated Roman Empire? Can you imagine how he felt when he first came face to face with Matthew and he found out that Matthew had been all through his life a traitor to his own nation? He extorted money from the Jews to give to the Romans? Can you imagine when they first showed up in that first meeting of the disciples and he realized who he was sitting beside? Maybe you've had the same experience in church. You don't get to judge who comes here. You don't get to pick who gets to sit where they sit. You don't get to pick who gets to come to the altar. You don't get to pick who God saves and delivers and heals and fills with his spirit. You don't get to pick. God can save anybody. God can raise up anybody. If he can raise up stones to praise him, he can raise up drug addicts to be preachers. If he can raise up stones to praise him, he can raise up alcoholics to be leaders in the apostolic church. Can you imagine? He looks over. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Publican would have been mortal enemies in any other setting. Simon would have killed him in a heartbeat before. But now Jesus called them to serve together. And Jesus said things like this. If you love them which love you, what reward do you get for that? Jesus is saying anybody can love somebody that loves them back. Don't even the publicans do the same? Can you imagine Simon sitting there listening to that? Jesus is praising the publicans. Even the tax collectors love the people that love them, Simon. And if you salute your brethren only, if you greet your brethren only, if you hug your brethren, if you embrace your brethren only, what are you doing more than anybody else in the world? Everybody else embraces their friends and loves their friends and greets their friends. Simon, don't even the publicans do that? Simon sat there and listened to Jesus teach just like that. And he realized that this kingdom is very different than the kingdom I came out of. 
this world is very different than the world that I came out of. And can I tell every one of us tonight that the church is very different than the world you work in five or six days a week. It's very different in here. You don't get to disregard people and disrespect people in here. We welcome everybody from everywhere. And the world... Thank you. And the longer this goes on, as long as Jesus tarries, the world is not getting easier to negotiate or better morally. The longer this goes on, the more brokenness is going to walk through these doors. The more dysfunction is going to walk through these doors. The more awkward, alternative, immoral lifestyles are going to walk through these doors. And if you're not ready to love them, it's not them that needs a trip to the altar. It's you and me that needs a trip to the altar until we're willing to negotiate this kingdom as Jesus told us to negotiate this kingdom. Paul lowered the boom. And such were some of you. Oh, not me. See, you've forgotten. And if you were never that, your grandpa was or your mother was, somebody in your family tree was, somebody made the decision, maybe it was before you were born, but you don't get extra credit for that just because it was your grandpa that first walked down an aisle to an altar and gave up drugs or alcohol. You don't get extra credit for that. We are all recipients of the great mercy and grace and forgiveness and love of God. So if God would love us, who do we think we are? that we wouldn't obey him when he tells us to love others. When Matthew and Mark list the 12, they put Simon the Zealot just before Judas Iscariot. Now it's pretty obvious as you look at the lists, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, it's extremely likely that because they were listed together, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot were one of those teams of two. And that makes sense to me. Because initially, they probably both followed Jesus for similar political reasons. Both Judas Iscariot and Simon the Zealot wanted a Messiah who was going to deal with the Romans. But such is the, the beauty of the grace of God that somewhere along the way, Simon the zealot, Simon the hater, Simon the assassin, Simon the terrorist. He was transformed when the master started dealing with the real issues. Not the issues of the Roman government or his culture, the issues of his heart and his motives. And that never seems to have happened for Judas Iscariot. And that's why one life ended in heaven and one life ended in hell. One life ended in victory and one life ended in tragedy. Such is the grace of God for every one of us. In the Old Testament, the bravest among King David's soldiers were referred to as the 30. But there was a trio of soldiers, Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah. Their exploits elevated them far above even the 30. And David affectionately called that trio his three mighty men. Jesus did the same thing for Peter, James, and John when he made them his inner circle. And that investment of time and teaching by Jesus, he took them places that he didn't take the other nine. And that investment is why Peter, James, and John are so prominent in the Gospels 
and also in the first few years of the New Testament church. It only makes sense. Jesus invested in them. They were his inner circle. But James the Less and Judas Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot had no such privilege. They were definitely not in the inner circle. In fact, the scarcity of detail about their lives in the Gospels, it would actually tell us the opposite. They weren't in the inner circle. They were in the outer circle. There were probably many days that James the Less and Judas Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot felt marginalized or unimportant or overlooked or maybe even jealous. But I close tonight by telling you that the kingdom of God has a very different measuring stick than the kingdoms of earth. Not just for these men, but for you and for me too. And when we get to heaven, we will see for all eternity how our faithful God honors those who have served in the hidden corners of his kingdom. When they walk into that city, it's not any different for prominent Peter, prominent Simon Peter, than it is for Simon the Zealot. My Bible tells me in the 21st chapter of Revelation, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Simon the Zealot gets the same privilege as Simon Peter, the outspoken day of Pentecost preacher. And if I could speak to you personally tonight, it's been such an honor and a joy to teach this little series. It has blessed me in ways that I find hard to put into words. I get tearful as I study and as I try to teach you. And uh, over the last few weeks, Brother Larry Carr, who has not been in service, as you know, for several months, he's in the hospital and his physical situation, which has been constant, chronic, excruciating pain for years, has gotten worse over the last few months. And that faithful man has called me after Bible study over the last three weeks to say, thank you, Pastor, for preaching the word. It blessed me tonight. One night he was talking in tongues when I picked up the phone and got the message. When we get to heaven, the judgment seat of Christ will be the great equalizer. I'll leave here in the morning and I'll go preach a meeting in Texas and then go to Wisconsin and preach another meeting and then another meeting and then I'll come back home. I love home. I'm just trying to do my little bit for the kingdom of God. Don't you ever think that because Pastor Matt or Pastor Jack or Pastor Raymond or any of the other leaders or pastors or evangelists or teachers because their name is on some poster or website somewhere, that somehow they are more valuable to the kingdom of God than you are. Everywhere I go, I'm undergirded by the faithful prayers of a beloved wife who's very seldom with me, but Beverly prays for me multiple times every day. But I'm also undergirded by the faithful prayers of people like Larry Carr. If you look at it from the world's lens... It doesn't seem like he can do very much. But Larry, I know you're watching or listening tonight. In the eyes of heaven, that man is part of the underpinning, the undergirding, the foundation of this church congregation.
He's incredibly valuable. And you are incredibly valuable. And I don't care if nobody else in this church even knows your name yet. If you just arrived here, let me tell you something. There is a reward in heaven when you finally get there that's going to blow your mind. And it's going to turn the world's reward system on its head when we suddenly see the obscure and the ignored and all those people that they labored in the darkness and they prayed for people that were more in the spotlight. But when we get there, God's reward system is going to be so beautiful. You are not wasting your time serving God faithfully in your little corner of the kingdom. And Pastor Raymond just came to tell you that tonight because I love you very much, but the Lord loves you far more than I do. I admire your faithfulness, but someday he's going to reward your faithfulness. Would you stand to your feet tonight? I'm finished. Would you lift up both of your hands and then would you lift up your voice even higher than those hands and would you lift up every great word you've got and just give honor to the Lord who is so faithful. His kingdom is so beautiful. His word is so spectacular. His promises are magnificent. Everything he's done for us, everything he's given to us, it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's life changing and there's nothing like belonging to the kingdom of God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. We've done this every week. Don't let me interrupt, but would you reach over and put your hand on somebody's shoulder and would you pray together because we're all valuable in the kingdom of God. You might not even know the name of the person that's standing next to you, but would you just lay your hand on them and pray for them because they're valuable in the kingdom of heaven. They're valuable to do the will of God. They're valuable in the kingdom of God on this earth through his church. They're incredibly valuable. Every anonymous saint, Every unknown prayer warrior, God looks at them and he has a great reward for your faithfulness. Oh, pray, church. That's beautiful. I worship you, Jesus. 